0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Peak and Flow podcast. My name is Dave Nixon and today I am going to talk a bit about real world strength. Now, for the most part with the Peak and Flow podcast and a lot of my work, I do, do a lot of talking or a lot of uh, presenting around uh, mental side of living, right? Our developmental space and beyond um, or beneath, depending how you want to look at it. What I probably don't do as much on is the physical stuff, um, functional training or the physical components, even breath work and even cold exposure. Of course, I've done a couple of little podcasts and things like that. Just keep on bumping this microphone. Um, However, that's really my, uh, I guess, introduction into this space was through physical training and it was from coaching. And so really my background... Uh, I started working within the fitness industry at the age of 15 and started training people at the age of 16. I did a traineeship and went on to manage gym at 18, managing three gyms at 19, starting my own gym at 22 with six clients in the corner of an MMA gym uh, called Functional Fitness Australia. And I still have that business today and what it's really built on. So today I want to talk about real world strength and it's going to point to a bit of work with relation to how the body functions as a whole unit. Uh, There's plenty of different bodies of work and I think when it comes down to training, there's a number one rule which is do you enjoy it? Uh, If you can enjoy it, you can keep doing it and there's no real wrong way to train. Now, there's maybe inefficient ways to train or maybe there's... Uh, non-optimal ways to train depending on people's goals yet as a general rule uh there's plenty of people who have gym memberships that aren't very healthy there's plenty of people that don't have gym memberships that are exceptionally healthy so and a big part of that is you actually defining health for yourself so that's loose and some people might not like that because it's like well how do we know how to achieve it if it's not defined it's like well there is the external objective data that's important to consider there's also internal subjective data and um, that's exceptionally important otherwise you're just constantly training based upon some sort of external demand um, and uh, and that's where training can sometimes be non-meaningful therefore non-enjoyable and The other reason for that and for my point is because uh, depending how old you are personally, but let's say somebody at 40, the reason what, what they deemed to be healthy for them at the age of 30 isn't the same as 40 and it won't be the same as at 50 and it wasn't the same at 20. And so we have to have this understanding of what actually is health for us at the different stages of life that we're at. And if we don't have that self-awareness, that internal awareness of going, hang on a sec, what is health for me now at this stage of my life, then we end up trying to train the same way we did five, 10 years ago, pre-baby or, you know, pre-injury or pre-career or whatever the case might be. And it's interesting because people want to progress their career or, or progress their life and maybe have children or have these other factors come into play. But then they go, when I got my best results in the gym, I was 25 and I was doing this. It's like, buddy, you're 40 now, right? So you it's just it's going to be different and it has to be different so so for example right now where are we at and what's the next step but on top of that like how do you want to be doing this at 50 do you want to be having the same conversation at 50 is that at 50 when i was 25 i was doing x y and z it doesn't work so let's just meet us where where we're at and, and and take a step from there a big part of this and working in the industry for the last 20 years I've had thousands and thousands of conversations, thousands, let alone training thousands of people on the gym floor. The opportunity that I've had is to be able to see what's really important for the majority of people, but on top of that, to be able to see thousands of different bodies move different ways uh, with different restrictions and um, different goals, I guess, as well. But there's a couple of key things that are, that are pretty consistent and similar, and I'm going to talk to those things today. And one of those things is... You never touch a barbell outside of the gym. You never do the rigid movements that are in a gym outside of the gym. Things aren't evenly weighted. Things don't um, have a perfect grip. They don't have a perfect arc like a cable machine of sorts. They don't have... Uh, the perfect handle with knurling that you can grip onto. Things aren't like that. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't train like that. It doesn't mean that barbells aren't useful or machines aren't useful. My gym, I have 30 barbells, let alone the 20-odd specialty bars. And on top of that, I've got plenty of cable machines and, and specialty machines for a variety of different reasons. What I'm pointing to is when you leave the gym, the things that you pick up and move is fundamentally different to the things that we see in most gyms so how do we actually train for life and how do we train to have real world strength and so being able to expose ourselves to multiple different movements or movement patterns with multiple different implementations and i'm thinking like equipment right allows us to be able to build a deeper understanding and a deeper kinesthetic connection and kinesthetic awareness some people might call this a a, um, mind mind muscle connection or body brain connection (laughs) connection connection and that's all well and good but it's like how do we deliberately do this and this is one of the challenges that we see when we just have these external cues for a barbell deadlift it's like that's all well and good for the barbell deadlift but we have an opportunity in every single exercise that we teach as a trainer to be able to help somebody deepen their kinesthetic awareness and kinesthetic intelligence and so how are we doing that in our exercise execution how are we doing that in our client support conversations that's the kind of thing because when we're able to help somebody develop a deeper kinesthetic awareness uh, on how to function more efficiently and safer they're able to then do that outside of the gym whether they're moving boxes or a pop plan or you know different types of bags that have different types of handles odd objects maybe they're helping not just move a house but helping out on a farm or they're helping to clear out the garage and having to put their body into different positions And so sometimes this over-controlled, over-controlled, emphasize over, environment in the gym actually makes the person not function as well outside of the gym and could potentially increase their risk of injury. If we go to the gym, separate the body into parts, then expect it to work better as a whole, it may not really work that way. Now, being able to separate the body into parts to be able to train specific muscles but also build a connection specifically to that muscle group or muscle is great. But how does that then work as a single unit? Because whenever you throw a ball, whenever you kick a ball, whenever you jump, whenever you run, whenever you stand, whenever you lift, whenever you uh, push, pull, your whole body is doing that movement. Your whole body. And so if we're going to the gym now and just separating a body into parts and then leaving and expecting it to work as one unit, you may see why a lot of people become rigid in their movement and also rigid in their joints. And so... When we look at real world strength, we're also looking at, well, how do I function outside of here? How do I become a a healthy, fit, strong version that allows me to do the shit that I want to do outside of the gym? Now, if someone's a bodybuilder or a powerlifter or they have another spe- specific sport like weightlifting or whatever it might be, then by all means, go down that path and let that be your sport. In that case, you, you know there probably isn't a breadth of different training stimuluses because you're training for a particular outcome. In the same way, if someone was training for marathon running, then maybe there's some benefit Depending who you speak to, on some strength training, but not to the same degree they would be for a front rower in football. Now, I know that makes sense, yet it's important to say because a lot of the time we get stuck on this idea that everyone needs to do the same thing, and it's just not. You can do, you can literally do anything you like. Now, people can sometimes also say, well, what's the best way to grow muscle? And I think a better question than that is for what? I'm not saying don't grow muscle, but I'm saying for what? or to look better. Okay, look better to who? And if we're actually able to ask these questions open and honestly and without being um, scared or afraid of the answers that arise, we start getting to what's actually really important, what we're really after, rather than just building conditional esteem or conditional confidence based upon how we think we look to others. And so there's a key difference there. Now, if you're healthy, active, strong, fit open funnily enough if you're actually a open human being if you're more positive in nature you end up being more attractive in that circumstance anyway so there's a lot more to it than just a gym funnily enough however when we come back to real world strength we're actually looking at the difference between movement versus exercise and what i mean by movement versus exercise is that somebody and it might be like rather than movement and exercise are singular words. I'm talking about efficiency of movement or, or, or um, optimal movement, maybe like optimal functioning, efficiency of function, efficiency of movement, and exercising as in uh, increasing heart rate and, and intensity and effort. Now, if we're moving inefficiently and use running as the example, our feet are not designed to fit into these runner shoes for a variety of different reasons, with them being um curled at the front, so a very small toe box. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have them. I'm just saying we weren't born imperfect as human beings. And we we're like, imagine these animals, but with shoes on their feet. No, oh, well, let's create an industry. And it's not like big shoes coming after you, but <laughs> hear me out. This idea of having a very closed-off toe box, but also a really big cushion with a heel. Now, if you're wanting to maintain a pretty standard midline, and then your midline is also going to be, as a, as a, as a neutral spine, is always going to be dictated by uh, A, tension, and B... What are you actually moving or doing? Because if I'm uh, having a stable midline in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, that's going to be very different to a stable midline when I'm uh, Olympic weightlifting, and which would be very different to a stable midline when throwing a ball. And so there's a lot more to it when we look at neutral spine and stability, but at the core of it, we want to see it as going, this midline wants to act like a nice, stable container, almost like a cylinder of sorts, right? I've actually got this here mug so ideally similar to this and so what that allows us to do is have these two lines running parallel if you can see on youtube or similar and then a nice strong midline all the way around not just your abdominals we're talking about the multifidus muscles through your spine your erectors we're talking about your tva transverse abdominis plays a role your external obliques and internal obliques now it's a bit more funky than that because you've got this internal core and external core like structural muscles and that's really what i'm referring to and so when we look at that midline being nice and stable, as soon as we raise your heel, then if you were to keep that midline stable, you're going to lean forward. And so if we're just standing majority of the day in these shoes that have heels in them, rather than leaning forward, right? Because we'll fall over or we're constantly like trying to grip our glutes to not fall over, our pelvis usually rolls forward and our chest usually picks up. Our hip flexors usually get a bit tighter, especially your psoas muscle, which attaches to the front of your spine. Our glutes get lengthened and because your hip flexors and your hip extensors. So you're, you're, there's a group of hip flexor muscles and then you've also got your glute max, which is your predominant hip extensor. And so if that pelvis rolls forward, we start to see this opening up of your midline and we start to see a weakness through, well, at least vertically loading through that midline as well, and so let's say we do that so we've got our shoes squished into these runners which also usually pushes your big toe up your big toe plays a significant role in applying pressure to the ground for glute function that whole posterior chain the muscles that go between your calves hamstrings, glutes and all the way up and so if we've got that toe squished into the second toe and then pushed up a little bit because the front of your runner picks up because it's designed to like <laughs> roll along the ground to take away that sort of pressure on the heel um, the difficulty of that now is that we're not even striking our foot on the ground we're just allowing our momentum to go forward and then instead of contacting the earth and driving ourselves forward because if we're running we should be contacting the earth underneath us to propel us forward we end up having our feet land flat or feet land in front of us now if you're going to run barefoot you don't want your foot to land flat you definitely don't want it to land in front of you because if it's going to land in front of you that's going to be your heel there's no cushioning or support system in your heel. Funnily enough, if you want to slow down, whereabouts on the ground, depending on where your like center of gravity is, where should you be striking the ground? In front of you, because that's your brakes. And so if you're running in these cushioned high heels with a pretty, really poor midline with tight hip flexors, weak glutes, and you're heel striking in front of you, but you run 10 kilometers, and let's say that's... Uh, a meter stride, so 5,000 repetitions each leg now remember every single time you move you're reaffirming a motor pattern or you're creating a new one. So if you're just moving and exercising habitually in your runners with tight hip flexes, weak midline and you're just running with your music on to get out of your head for a little while so you put yourself into a fight or flight space you don't have to think about your taxes and the emails and the conversation you've been avoiding having with your spouse, then yes, of course we're going to exercise. But did you function correctly because if you're landing your heel in front of you you're putting all the gearing force the braking force through your ankle knee and hip and your lower back unnecessarily for the sake of exercise so when we look at movement we look at efficiency in of of function and movement and we want to look at going how do we coach that and that's really simple we coach it through well what's safe what's good range of movement um, what range of movement can the person maintain stability and then can they repeat that stability throughout that range of movement and then we add intensity volume load to that we don't have intensity, volume, load first. If there's a restriction through range of movement, then we want to be able to deal with that and go, well, is it is it a, uh, a physiological thing? Is it an injury? Is it a person just not aware of where they are in space? So their spatial awareness, let alone their kinesthetic intelligence is not really that well-developed. And so if that's the case, what information and what do I need to offer this person to be able to deepen that so that they can get a deeper understanding of where they are and what to build on over time? Because technique is not something to get right. Moving is something to deepen and develop over time. So given that, when we look at real-world strength and functional training, it's going, how do we allow and teach this body to move as one whole unit whilst going through these main movements? And it can be a barbell deadlift. It can be a barbell bench press. Right, Your barbell bench press is still a full-body movement. So is, your, so is your deadlift. Right, There's certain muscles that are emphasized more, but I can promise you every single joint in your body is actually being used in a deadlift. Just some of them are actually stabilizing. So even the muscles in your feet should be gripping the ground and stabilizing to have a nice, firm contact to the earth. It's, it's a full body movement and when we start treating these exercises like this and we start to build an understanding of what form is on the inside and my awareness of what my physical form is, then I get a really good understanding of how to function cross-contextually whether I'm in the gym, whether I'm on a sporting field, or whether I'm uh, at home moving things or playing with my children. I end up having this return on investment that is cross-contextual. Because it allows me to go, not only am I getting strong at the gym, that's all well and good, but what for? What am I actually using this for and and how is it keeping me injury-free or unnecessary injury-free is probably the best way to put it uh, outside of the gym so that I can do all the things that I want to do? Because the gym should be supplementary to your life. It should be supplementary. It can be important. We have people that train here five, six days a week, but it should be supplementary. It should be fundamentally enhancing the 23 hours that you don't spend in the gym. I worked with a gym in, 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 I worked with many gyms, but a gym in Sydney and one of the things they said was, and I've heard this heaps, I think we may have even done it before in the past, we want to make sure that the client's best hour of the day is with us. We want to make their their one hour here their best hour and I'm like, not with their family. You don't want their best hour of the day to be with their family or doing what they love. You want it to be with you. Here's the thing. It's a really, really... um, noble approach to coaching and training and, and gym business of being like, make it their best hour. You, their time in the gym, if if you're really being people-centric, their time in the gym should be upholding their best hour outside of the gym. It should be a reason why they're able to make the other hour the best hour, that they're present with their family, that they're playing with their kids, they're able to play sport, they're able to do things, they're able to be out of pain. That their, their one hour in the gym should enhance that. That's what it should be. Now we're looking at something that's people-centric, not fitness-centric and not industry-centric. And on that note, team, I'm done. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would mean the world to me if you'd pass it on to someone else that you think would also enjoy this podcast. You can find out about our trainings and our our peak and flow community in the notes below. Uh, You can get a copy of my book, Minding Yourself, anywhere online that sells books. Um, Otherwise, that's it. I'm out. Until next time, peace and pizza. I'll see you soon.